Hi, everybody. I'm Chick Hernandez, multi-Emmy Award winner. Do you care? I don't know. I don't care. It was great. You're listening to Pro Sports Podcasters. There, that one's more like it. We are the Pro Sports Podcasters, where no sport is left behind. It's time for another episode of the Pro Sports Podcasters with your hosts, Nee Wallace-Bruce, Corbert Durand, and Justin Williams. On this podcast, we have guests from all over the world covering every sport from artistic gymnastics to weightlifting. We are something for every sports fan on PSP. Whether your interests are the athletes playing the game, the coaches, or the media, we've got you covered. Fun and informative, honest and engaging. You won't want to miss a single episode. So let's kick this off. Hey, and welcome back to another episode of the Pro Sports Podcasters. I'm one half your host today, Justin Williams. And fun fact for you guys, I'm back in Ontario. Today, I have the guy who actually moved from a different country to be here with us today. You know his voice. It sounds so sexy and smooth. He could read me the Bible and the phone book if the phone book is still available for purchase. I don't know how that works. I'm a 90s child, but I'm also a millennial. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome brother from down under, Mr. Nee Waltz Bruce. Nee, how you I'm not too bad, Justin. Pleasure to be on. And I am looking forward to today's chat. I can't complain. It's uh, from my neck of the woods. Yeah, yeah. I'm so excited for this interview. Sorry, there was a bit of a lag there on my part. I don't know if my internet said to crap out last second, but hopefully it doesn't proceed on for the following interview. Because, ladies and gentlemen, we have a gentleman today. This man has been hailed as a J-League shaman. This man is a sports journalist at the Japan Times. Ladies and gentlemen, if you don't know, you're going to know. Also, he plays fantasy football with his dad for the past 30 years. How cool is that? Please welcome Mr. Dan Oluwitz. Dan, how you doing? I'm good. Uh, have have never been introduced like that on a podcast before, but I will run with it. How are you guys doing? I am living the metaphorical dream. I mean, I'm alive. That's kind of how everything is at this point if i'm alive i feel like i'm living the dream but anyways anyways all of it son you're asking she must i'm impressed this is off to the off to a very very good start let's go (laughs) yeah nee you actually took uh conversational japan in university didn't you like for a semester and then i was shamed into thinking something else but yes i did study in high school uh, I, I've visited the, the great country of Japan three times, and I would highly recommend it to anyone who's listening uh, to definitely give it a visit. Wouldn't you agree, Dan? Yeah, um, it's it's funny. We we had a long time without tourists, and that was that was quiet and and peaceful, and not at all crowded. And you know that's changed. The the, the tourists are back, and we do love we do love a healthy uh, service economy here in Japan. Uh, so it's, it's been good to have people back and get some of the vibrancy of the city, especially back in Tokyo. But uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's certainly a vibe check after all these pandemic years and uh, things have changed a lot. And uh, I do recommend, Hey, if, you, if you've never been here, come, if you haven't been here, if, if you have been here before, then, you know, come see what's changed because I guarantee you everything has changed. Right. Okay. Well, last time I was there was 2016. So, I mean, I know that Tokyo, for example, is quite dynamic. But um, would you say things have changed since then? Yeah. I mean, it's they've done a lot of catch up in terms of English language signage, menus, stuff for tourists, uh, 
all of the train lines have been working on improving signage, uh, more safety features, more escalators. Some of the major stations in Tokyo have changed like three or four times since then. My wife always tells the story. She goes to work. She works in Shibuya, or she used to. She still does, but used to too. And uh, she went, came came home one night, went back out the next day. The exit that she usually took had disappeared. Just totally gone. And then that's just sort of the way things are here. Thing, I mean, everything gets redeveloped. Uh, tons of new skyscrapers, shopping centers. Like it, it's, it, I think I was just in New York and it's funny how New York never changes, at least on the outside. Uh, but Tokyo is always changing everywhere. And I think that's one of the cool contrasts of, of here versus a lot of other places. Absolutely. It's definitely it's got its own unique beat that it uh, dances to, if you will. Now, you're at the Japan Times, and that doesn't happen by accident. So, Dan, give our listeners a little bit of an insight into how you got to where you are today. So, I guess I started following the J-League. I came here at the end of... Well, I did my study abroad in in 0405, and at the time I wasn't really into soccer. I'm going to assume that soccer is the word of choice here. I, I always say, I have to say, you know, even when I'm writing football, I have to say soccer once every 10 times or I, or I get my passport taken from me. <laughs> but I moved here end of 06. I had just graduated. I was, I knew I wanted to move back here and I went into a language school, stumbled upon my first J League game, watched uh, FC Tokyo get pasted by Kashima Antlers uh, as, as many teams, uh, did over the course of that 2007 season, which Kashima won, and they then they went on to win the win three in a row. Uh, but I fell in love with it, picked up season tickets, started going to FC Tokyo games, doing stuff behind the goal, flags, banners, that sort of thing, and and blogging about it. And there was a community of other foreigners who followed the league, followed the clubs, blogged, posted on forums, and we we all had our separate things going and. That eventually turned into writing at Goal.com, the the soccer portal. Uh, I guess it's still a big deal these days, but I was on the international section writing on the Asia desk. And a couple, after a couple of years of doing that, I ended up doing various and sundry at a, at a couple Japanese sites. And about five years ago, exactly, I ended up at the Japan Times, which is the country's biggest English language newspaper, and I'm still the soccer guy, but I also have a chance to write about a bunch of other sports uh, when I get the chance. I do a lot of skateboarding and figure skating for some reason. I've done uh, some rugby coverage. I went to the Winter Olympics last year, and of course the Summer Olympics and Paralympics here in Tokyo in 2021. The the 2020 Summer Games in 2021, as it, as it was. And yeah, that that's... I think the short version felt like forever, but <laughs> no, I am I'm loving it because you've taken me back. Because when I was in Japan, 2004, I naturally had to go out and see a J League game, and Kashima Antlers became my team. I saw them out at Ibaraki against Tokyo Verdi, which featured the, I guess nowadays kids would say the corpse of Patrick Mboma, the Cameroon international. But that was uh, my first insight into the J League, and then. Cashman became my team, and yeah, that, that that league has just gone from good to great over the last 20 years. 
and that's really that's a hard mode team to pick for a, a foreign fan actually one of japan's most distinguished clubs and certainly its most successful from a trophy perspective but also that stadium is not exactly easy to get to you have to take the bus from tokyo station and that goes two hours to Kashima Jingu, and then you have to get the that weird two-car little tram train that only goes once every half hour on game days to Kashima Stadium. I mean, it's funny you know between me and some of the other English language uh, writers, you know, a lot of us sort of maybe this is this is uh, talking out of you know pulling the curtain back a bit too much, but. One of the reasons that a lot of us don't get out there, don't cover Kashima as much when they're playing at home is because it's just such a pain in the ass to get to those games and to get home. I, I remember leaving the stadium at 6.30 on a Saturday night and not getting through my front door until midnight, 1 a.m. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That definitely rings a bell. I do recall the first time I was lucky enough that my host family I was with took me out there in, in their car. So it was, a, it was a winding road, literally a winding road to get out there. I was staying in Ibaraki at the time. But yeah, I do remember post game it was quite a drive to get out of the stadium and you could see the sunset. It was picturesque, but it was a long drive. Uh so surprise, surprise, next time I got to see Kashima Antlers, it was a little bit closer to Tokyo, it was uh, against Casual Race Soul. Yep. So- <laughs> that and, and that's that's a I love Kashiwa's stadium is one of my favorite Luke, small grounds to recommend to people because the atmosphere is great. Uh, those fans are just always loud, always passionate, uh, and it's just compact and it does give, especially for uh, English fan, you know, English football fans who who want you know to experience a different side of the game. I mean, there's there's tons of J League experiences, but Kashiwa in the stadium that you know you close your eyes that could be you know in the championship or in League One or something mm. like that. But it's it's right there in the middle of suburban Shiba. Absolutely, it's it's a it's a boutique stadium for sure. Yes, indeed, it is a boutique stadium. As I've just been googling images this whole time. But also moving forward, Nee, why did I do the intro if you speak the language? I feel like this was a bit of a bait and switch for our fans. But anyways, <laughs> moving forward. Speaking of bait and switches, not actually. I just didn't know how to do a segue for this one. Uh, Dan, can you explain? or share some insight into the unique aspect of covering Japanese soccer or football as a foreign writer? It, it is. So I think all of us come into it with, with you know, there's, there's a small handful of us who are, are covering it for a living and then sort of the greater fan journalist, blogger community, whatever you want to call it. And I think all of us come into it with different perspectives and, for me, it's more about just sharing the culture and the history with an audience that, that otherwise would have no access to it. I think that I, I tend to stray more from, uh, let, I tend to go away from less the tactical analytic side of it. I think that like, you know, these days, especially there's, there's, all these high school kids in Jakarta or Dubai with Y Scout accounts and they can, make charts all day long and and they'll be infinitely better at it but you know it's about understanding 
why these teams are here and what what the significance is of of this player succeeding or of this stadium being rebuilt or the the uniform colors the badges the mascots everything i just i just think it's it it's it's very much an underappreciated league because there's been so little relatively uh written about it in english compared to say the top european leagues of which you know you can can't throw a rock without hitting 10 Serie A bloggers who are all putting out their books on the history of Milan or Juventus or whatever and there's so much happening and that doesn't answer your question directly but that that's the perspective that I'm coming from and as foreign writers as non-Japanese writers we do sort of get to approach the league from a unique perspective because we're contextualizing it against what's happening in the rest of the world, which is something that Japanese fans may not always be aware of. So while we are writing about the league in English a lot of the time, we are also sometimes introducing Japanese fans to things that they didn't know about the league, that they didn't find interesting, that, well, when we say, hey, this is super interesting, they go, oh, really? Like, I didn't know about that. Um, right. And it's, I mean, there are challenges. I think that especially the, the sort of the media landscape and, and dealing with clubs and dealing with players, um, the, the way that players are trained to deal with the media, how they respond in interviews and in the mix zone and that sort of thing. It's sort of different from overseas. Sometimes they're more guarded. They'll talk a lot, but they'll say nothing. And it's the same with managers. Like, so you have to, some managers, you really have to push them to get them to say anything major. But if you have a foreign manager, for example, you know how to tee them up. And they know that like they're there to give you the sound bite. And a lot of the time, they can be very cooperative. So yeah, it's about it's just, just a different skill set and just a different way of creating those relationships. Brilliant. Thank you for that amazing insight. That was... Well in depth. If I was uh, if I was your professor, I'd give you a solid nine and a half out of ten. I'll take it. Yeah, so highest mark I've ever received. Now, <clears throat> when we're coming to a game or any sort of event, how do you prepare? Like, what is your creative process when it comes to writing about a match or an event that's that's taking place in either the the city that you mainly support or maybe an away city? Like, what happens? Oh, so I tend to cover games sort of in the greater Tokyo area, which includes Tokyo, Yokohama, you know, Yokohama, Kawasaki, Urawa, um, sometimes Kashiwa, very occasionally Kashima. Uh, and the challenge is when it comes to, to picking what matches to cover, you're looking for storylines, you're looking for uh, things that you can write about that are sort of beyond the game itself, because one thing especially in the year of our Lord 2023 in, in sports media is that match reports really have a, a very finite shelf life. Like if I write a gamer, it, it, it doesn't mean anything after 24 hours unless it's something, unless something historic happens. And in nine, tomorrow. right. And in, in 99% of J Lee games, you know, nothing historic or interesting is happening. And that's sort of just sort of, so, when I go, I'm either looking to, there's a hook about the game that I know I want to write about, or there's a player I want to talk to. It could be for something immediate. 
uh, like, for example, if they're going to Europe or if they're planning to retire or if they if they tweeted a hot take and I want to talk to them about it. Like, uh, sometimes I'll go to that and sometimes it's just sort of collecting quotes and, and putting them in the storage chest for later because, you know, all of us sort of, you know, we're like dragons and we just hoard MP3s off of our sound recorders in the hopes that one day we'll be able to use it. Uh, and, you know, it, so it, it's usually one of those situations. And, and sometimes I'll even go to a game where I'm just not writing about the game, but writing about something totally in the periphery. Uh, I went to Osaka back in June uh, to go to an FC Osaka game, the third division. And my focus wasn't on the game, but it was about how the club is conducting these sort of environmentally friendly initiatives. And, and it was for a bigger piece on how the J League is combating climate change. That's so, cool. yeah, and it was a cool thing. It's uh, uh, what Osaka were doing was uh, they had a partnership with the sponsor where if you brought your used cooking oil instead of throwing instead of throwing it down the drain, which, of course, you're not supposed to do. Uh, if you brought like a bottle of used cooking oil, uh, then you could trade it in for free tickets. Oh, that's amazing! And then that company would take the all the oil that was collected and like recycle it properly and use it. To, I believe they were using it to create soap products that could then be used at the bathrooms in the stadium. Yo, and, and, and you know that was part of how the you know the league does all these sort of SDG related initiatives. Um, you know, used to. Be, I mean, I mean, there, there's an, a number of, of you know, they're, they're called a number of different things over, overseas, but the league is really passionate about what it's called, it's called Shakarenke, um, or basically community engagement. And they have award ceremonies for these programs, and they can be anything from sort of environmentally related or just helping. It, it, it is, they are events or projects that help the, the club, the leagues, and and the communities and the hometowns become closer. And I just, you know, that's a case where I see something and it's just something that I feel like our readers would be curious about. And I think it's just something that, that the world needs to know about since a lot of this stuff doesn't get translated into English anywhere. And so that's sort of where I step in and say, hey, this is something I should write about. Wow. I went from asking a simple question to getting a whole in-depth answer that I'm now going to take to BMO and be like, why aren't you guys taking our cooking oil? What is wrong with you guys? You guys have two different leagues playing here. Shame on you. Shame everybody who's not using cooking oil. Nee, do you use cooking oil or are you like a Pam kind of guy? Uh, I'm a, more of a Sprite kind of guy, but there is a, there is a time and a place for oil uh, for sure. Good lad. D depends on the meal. Now, I will contend that the J-League is all was already the world's most sustainable league when considering the way that the fans clean up after themselves. I know that was popularized, I think it was first in maybe 2010 or the 2014 uh, FIFA Men's World Cup, but I'll never forget when I first saw it uh, after that, that J-League game at Kashima, and I felt like a bit of a hipster when it became, went on blast. I was like, yeah, and that's that's just how they do it out in Japan. But the way the game's played, it, it has been shaped somewhat by the methods of wheel curver if i'm not mistaken and the j league spawned in the 90s it's one of the leading leagues in asia i've got to ask dan the the growth of the game in the last 30 years 
uh, in the country, both men's and women's. What do you see for the game going forward in, as we look to the future? Uh, so, and I, I will say, if you want to put a pin in the in the trash collection thing and come back to it, I, I do, can go on a bit about the history of that. But to to, to answer the actual question, I, I think that yes, I mean, the the J League is celebrating its thirtieth anniversary this year. If you look at the growth of the league from ten clubs in '92 when it was first announced and they held the first J League Cup to sixty this year three divisions with full promotion relegation and uh we're even getting partial pro rel uh, or conditional pro rel from the 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 fourth division which is the the separate the Japan Football League which is the amateur national league it's been incredible and the J League was created to promote the growth and development of Japanese soccer to it, it was it was created with the intent of helping Japan reach the World Cup which it did in 1998 and now the goal is to create players who can help Japan win the World Cup and as we've seen over the last decade or so uh, Japan is getting closer uh, you know it's, it's a long way from reaching the mountaintop but uh they came surprisingly close to reaching the quarterfinals last year, which which would have been uh, a historic achievement. You look at the number of players who are now going from the J-League to Europe, I believe 15 or 16 just this summer. That's one of the harder parts of my job, is just keeping track of all the Japanese players who are in sort of relevant European leagues, which is at this point 80, maybe closer to 90. And at this point... The league is in a, a transitional phase where it has gone from helping the you know, the work of building the pyramid. I don't want to say it's done, but the pier the foundation is stable, and the pyramid continues to grow. Now it's about focusing on on the development of players and this transition into into what is a feeder league, uh, because the 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 J League is sending all these players to Europe, but now it's a question of how do you keep developing the players? How do you make sure that clubs are getting fairly compensated for the players, which is a continuous issue, uh, so that they can keep putting money into their academies? What is the scene, you know, what is the professional scene in Japan going to look like in 10 years, uh, especially when you're starting to see players go to Europe directly out of high school or college? Uh, so there, you know, there's a lot of questions that are facing the league, and that's even before we get into some of the big picture things. Like uh, there's there are plans that are being debated right now to transition from the the calendar year February to December schedule to the the fall spring schedule that Europe has. We're looking for that to potentially happen from 2026 after the World Cup, uh, and how is that going to change? the J League and how the fans engage with it. So, you know, a, a lot is happening. Um, the, the the soccer landscape in Japan has changed. The sports landscape in Japan has changed. You know, a lot of people who are smarter than I am are, are trying to figure out the answers uh, to all those questions. But at least, I mean, the fact that we are asking these questions at all is in and, in and of itself proof of how much the game has grown here. Oh, it's grown exponentially. Like, uh, I gotta say, as a close ish observer 
Japan is held in Asia as like you know one of the elite leagues. Like that, it's uh, just a quick one because our listeners may not be aware of this, but the AFC Asia, if you will, it's somewhat divided in half into East and West. So Japan naturally is in the East, but a lot of money was put into the West, namely Saudi Arabia. This transfer window just passed. How is that perceived in in East Asia, say Korea, Japan? Is that seen as a threat, or is it just a bit of uh, a few splash plays by the Saudi League? I, I think it is somewhat seen as it, it, it's seen as a threat by those who are concerned with the the continental balance of power. There are, for better or for worse, certain. Pre, I want to say preconceptions, but you know, there, there's, I, I don't want to say there's no racism in Asian soccer, but for example, a popular phrase that you hear a lot during the Asian Champions League and during World Cup qualifiers and competitions like the Asian Cup is Chu uh, Tono Fue, which, which translates into the, the Middle Eastern whistle. Mm. And what that means is that, you know, West Asian referees maybe see things very differently when it comes to bigger teams like Japan or Korea, you know, especially depending on who they're playing. So that aside, I think that's that's maybe deviating a little, but I'm just sort of saying the stage for how West Asia view, is viewed. I, I do think that there is concern that Saudi, Qatari, Emirati clubs, you know, they, they have a, a, a ton of money. I mean, the, that that's nothing new, but now they're actually trying to, to flex and make it work. Uh, and, and there is this question of, well, if Al-Hilal can buy all these big players and Neymar and whoever, what chance do Japanese clubs have in the Champions League? What chance do, you know, will that help raise the level of play in Saudi Arabia and help their national team become more dominant and, and you know, shift the balance of power in the continental game. And these are questions that have been asked before in different contexts. Uh, for example, uh, China in, in the 2010s did the same thing. They bought a ton of European and South American talent. They were, you know, it was, there's all the speculation of the sleeping dragon awakened and China was going to become this Asian superpower. And yes, their clubs won. I mean, particularly Guangzhou, uh, they won a lot of ACL titles, but China hasn't qualified for a World Cup in a long time, and mm-hmm. their 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 national team, their men's national team, is a joke. Their women's team isn't really much better. So, you know that that that's an issue of yes, they have the money, uh, or they had the money, I should say, but the administrative side uh, didn't do what they were supposed to do, like. They, they were horribly mismanaged, and they're still paying the price for it. Uh, so if you want to look at it cynically, you know, I think you can say that, well, Saudi Arabia and Qatar and UAE, for example, like they, they have smarter people in charge. And I think that given Saudi Arabia's other sports-related efforts, I think they have a much better idea of what they're trying to accomplish uh, and, and they may be more successful as a result, but in the end, I mean, I think that it, it Japan may be served better by just focusing on its own house, you know, like like trying to achieve its own goals. And 
I, I think that it, like if you're going, if Japan is going to compare itself to West Asia, you know, it's not going to look great. But I think that these developments are also, in a way, sparking the sense of urgency that yes, we do need to grow our clubs faster and grow them bigger, and which is why they're they're trying some changes to how prize money is allocated and and the divisional realignment and that sort of thing to encourage big clubs to become bigger and potentially move the J-League out of the parity era when any club can shock you and have a decent chance in any given year to maybe not something as sort of fade accompli as the Bundesliga or La Liga where you only have two or three teams who are ever in contention, but they do want to see the big clubs actually become big clubs. Uh, and, and so now it's a question of, well, how do you accomplish that, but still, but not leave the other 55 clubs behind? I don't know if I've answered your question or not, but no, I feel I, like I got pretty close. Yeah, I, it's definitely piqued a few things in my mind because you think about the Chinese experience, and I do feel like their failure, from memory, I think the men's team last made the World Cup in 2002, which you could argue was a byproduct of, you know, the two of the Asian Titans being hosts. So that kind of cleared a path for them. But I do feel like their failure to develop was on the back of not giving the locals enough of a chance when they had that big flight of capital back in the day um, that you mentioned. I do feel that the, the Japanese experience is a lot more sustainable when it comes to that. You mentioned that 16 players went across in the last window to Europe. I, I do beg to question whether we're going to see uh, top Saudi players getting that chance to go to Europe in the future. I think Sami, Sami Al-Jaber is the only one I can think of in the last 25 to 30 years that's, that's even attempted to go to Europe. From memory, I'm pretty sure Saudi players were banned from playing in Europe. It just wasn't a thing. So that will be interesting in terms of the transition from club to national results. BetUS Sportsbook is your ultimate destination for online betting. With sports betting, live betting, racebook, online slots, and online casino. It's available across the U.S. and Canada. Use the code PSP to receive a massive sign-up bonus. I mean, we've seen so many talented West Asian players who should have played in Europe, but never, and they have the talent, but they didn't go because I, I think that there is a different cult one there's a different mm. culture and i think that they uh, were in many ways maybe used to the com- the creature comforts of playing in saudi or or playing in in qatar uh and also those clubs being owned by trillionaires or whatever you know they could afford to to give the players whatever they wanted and, and pay these insane salaries and offer luxury cars and that sort of thing. And the, the sort of perks that European clubs aren't going to offer you unless you're a Neymar or a Messi, mm. essentially. Uh, and I, I do think that a lot of uh, West Asian players are, are sort of comfortable. Let's put it that way. And they, you know, they have it good. Uh, because like if you're if you're playing for the Saudi national team, you know you can reliably get to a World Cup. You are usually one of the top four or five teams in the continent. You have you know you make enough money in one season to be able to retire, <laughs> you know basically, and, and and eventually you know you you when you when you do retire, like you will be ri- richer than you know you'll be in like the, probably the top. <laughs> 
one percentile of of players worldwide in terms of of earnings uh and yeah like but japanese players meanwhile you know the 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 j league j league salaries aren't terrific i don't think it's not necessarily that money is is motivating players but you know they want to go to europe and test themselves and yes maybe become you know some of them want to become superstars but for many the ambition is to represent japan and to win a world cup like europe is a path to raising that trophy and increasingly Japanese players see Europe as the only way to get onto the national team. And I do think that within a few years, possibly as early as this next World Cup, uh, Japan can and will be able to field a squad of all Europe-based players. Okay. Watch this space. Yes, indeed. We will watch it. And uh, I'm excited to kind of see. I love the development. Like you said, it's been 30 years. Um, UFC just hit their 30-year milestone. MLS is probably not too far behind that. So I do feel like Japan has done a better job than MLS has when it comes to developing. But that's a whole different kit and caboodle. Also, I don't count the NASL as like the beginning part of it all. But again... Well, but, but like, but that, that, so that's like, like, that's the thing. And I think that I always tell people, I mean, it's, it's funny, actually, when I was stateside, I did, I did uh, visit uh, MLS HQ in New York, and I got to talk to some of the guys there. And it was, they were all super cool. And I, I, I was telling them, I always, I always describe MLS and the J League as cousins, mm-hmm. uh, both born in, you know, around the same time, I think MLS came in what, 95, 96 ish something like that you know the world cup was the motivator both in countries where soccer was not the dominant sport uh because when you have to remember i mean not that japan was a soccer backwater before the j league because the history of soccer in japan goes all the way back to the late 19th century there have been organized leagues for decades you know in, in the in the latter stages of the old japan soccer league uh, you had Japanese teams winning continental competitions, uh, signing big players. You know, you saw that the 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 national team was on the up, uh, and of course, Japan won the bronze medal at the Mexico City Olympics in 1968. So all these changes were happening, and and you know they they both had to fight for relevance. They both, in a way, had to fight against a media landscape that was largely apathetic to them. I mean, I think the, the, the J league had a better advantage in that, uh, Japanese media just love anything trendy. And, you know, if it's new, it's trendy. And, and so in that way, they were able to build a lot of generate a lot of buzz very early on for the J league and that enthusiasm caught on in the first few seasons, but then the bubble popped, uh, which is why you saw, you know, that there was the contraction in 98 when uh Yokohama Flugels were merged into Yokohama Marinos which is why that which is why that club is known today as Yokohama F Marinos that's what the F stands for mm-hmm. that was a big loss for the league but then again the following year you know that was 98 and then in 99 the J League launched the J2 so within 6 years of the first season you know the J League had a second division with Pro Rel and and the the third division came in 2013 i believe the first season was 20, 2013 2014 give or take uh and that started at 10 clubs and now it's at 20 
And, you know, MLS, I think, has the advantage of existing in a, you know, the U.S. is a country that that is sports business friendly, because I think anything that happens in one of the the big four, you know, NFL, uh, MLB, NBA, and NHL, like that automatically filters over. Japan has had to invent, reinvent the wheel in a lot of ways because the, the sports business industry has taken so long to catch up to the rest of the world. But, you know, the U.S. is where it's all happening. So it was easy for MLS to, to learn from those other leagues and, and adapt and evolve. Uh, and because there's so much money going into the league, you know, that's overcome a lot of the, the cultural and structural issues. You know, you can argue about whether or not the J League is more sustainable. And the answer is probably yes, because, you know, it's the pyramid is there. The academies are there. The, the fan base is there, but you know, you can't deny how big MLS has gotten and the, the fact that it has managed to sort of elbow its way in, into, you know, it being five top sports leagues in the US and not just four. So, you know, it's it, it sort of different, different approaches, but I think that both leagues have a lot to learn from each other. That is true. I feel like they do. Um, but there again, I feel like MLS probably could have. I don't know. I mean, selfishly, as a, as a football soccer fan, I would like to see them do more, especially during the time when TFC was like the team for like five years. So I don't know. I'd like to see a promotion relegation thing, but that's just not the North American way. Anyways. No, it is not the North American way. Uh, I, Australia is trying to bring in, I believe they've approved a second division. They definitely do take their cues from the MLS and to more of an extent the J-League. And one of the ways that that has happened has been the coaching path. Now, Dan, uh, you may be aware that Yokohama, they're they're doing pretty well. They're coached by an Australian, Kevin Musket. Mm -hmm. And he took over from another Australian in Ange Postacoglu. Further to to that, the Socceroos current coach, Graham Arnold, was manager of Vejalta Sendai. So my question is this, Dan. These Australians who are in Japan... How are they perceived by uh, media like yourself and also local fans, especially given that there was a rivalry between the two teams in the 2010s? Well, I mean, and it's interesting. I mean, you bring up the rivalry, and I think that us, the Australia-Japan rivalry has sort of grown up to be uh, a much more preferable, a much more a truer rivalry than Japan, South Korea, which is sort of the big rivalry in the region. Uh, and which I love it because it's sort of, it's also, it, it's based, it's totally based on the sporting aspect rather than the political aspect, you know, and, and yes, Graham Arnold was manager of Vigalta Sendai for like six weeks. Uh, that did not turn for, for those of you playing the home game that did not turn out well for him. Um, and there's a number of reasons for that. And I think that, you know, which is part of the challenge that uh, foreign managers face in Japan is that they don't necessarily get the support that they need. And I I think that what inevitably happens is that foreigners are hired based on the strength of what they've done at other clubs overseas, for example, but then they're brought in and, and rather than letting, rather than letting them cook, as the kids say, front offices, you know, club boards tried, you know, would rather that they, they want that they want these managers to coach their team sort of the Japanese way. Hmm. Like they just want the brand value of having a foreign coach without actually 
getting what the foreign coach is good at doing, which, you know, um, that's not every club, but that is usually a big reason why foreign coaches fail in the J League. But to your point, uh, I, I, Ange Postacalu was a revelation. He, you know, he was only at Yokohama for three and a half seasons, but what he brought to the club and to the league was irreplaceable. Uh, just, I mean, Yokohama were sort of searching for, for an identity around when he joined and he gave them that, which was incredibly important. But he also just brought this flair, the, the style of attacking football, the dedication. I think it was the dedication and the belief in what he was doing that struck a chord with, with so many of, you know, so many of the fans and also so many of the journalists who covered him. It was, you know, when you talk to him after the game, it was always the sort of, sort of the same answer. And it wasn't that, well, Angie, uh, Angie always had a plan A and his plan B was to do plan A better. Mm. And I think that a lot of the media who covered him during his time in Japan, like really respected that. And I think that, you know, he doesn't suffer fools, uh, not even lightly, he just doesn't suffer fools. A- and, you know, if you give him a, I talked about earlier about sort of teeing up softballs for the, for, for managers sometimes. Like he was the kind of guy, like, yeah, he'd give you the, the answer that you were looking for. But also, if you asked him a dumb question, he'd be like, you know, I disagree with that. You know, I disagree with the premise entirely. Mm. He wasn't, I, I, I think that Ange and Kevin, uh, and, Peter Klamowski, who's at, at FC Tokyo right now, they benefit from speaking through interpreters, uh, which is another tough aspect about foreign managers in Japan. It's that like y- you do have to formulate what you say in order to get the message across through someone else. You know, the, the players may understand you to an extent, but like speaking through an interpreter is really challenging at times. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like when I'm listening to a press conference, sometimes like I can, I will notice and the other foreign journalists will notice when, you know, the interpreter will soften things. Mm. He may omit, he may omit certain things. <laughs> I mean, for, for, for the sake of brevity, uh, but you know, it does change the tone. Uh, Japanese is a very contextual language. Mm. Uh, sometimes managers say something that if it's on the record in Japanese, uh, could, could get them, you know, I want to say fine. I, I can't remember the last time I, you know, I can't remember the last time a fine was announced for criticizing officiating. I don't know if they've just stopped announcing those, but like some managers have gotten in trouble. I remember someone, I forget who it was. It was a Brazilian manager. I'm going to try to stealthily look it up because I don't want to like have my loud ass mechanical mm-hmm. keyboard taking up half, taking up all your audio. Who was it? I think it was. I want to say it was like Toninho Sedeso oh, yeah. during his second stint, or. Oswaldo Oliveira, mm. someone, one of those, and I don't remember if it was when he was with Kashima or when, like, or if, if they were at a different team. But he had thoughts and opinions about the officiating, 
they were not positive thoughts or opinions. Uh, and I recall, I think the interpreter was like crying because he didn't want to interpret what the guy was saying because he knew that they were going to get fined. Mm. <laughs> like it was a bad, like, like uh, whatever the incident was, I'm not, I'm not trying to downplay the incident because I think it was like a pretty, the manager was justified in his anger. Uh, but it was one of those things. And, and so I think that, uh, Kevin and, uh, and Ange, like they they were very good and it's i think establishing really positive you know communication flows with their players with the media you know they they know how to play the game they've been doing it for many years as, as players and then or you know as managers in in Andrew's case and as a player in Kevin's case uh you know i will say that Kevin Muscat does have an attitude you know he has a reputation for being a hard ass yep but and i i i don't want to say the J League has softened him uh, because I think he's, you know, he's still the same guy he always was. But I, I do think that he has, you know, gained a measure of control as, you know, during his coaching time here. I, I can see that change in attitude, um, and in a positive way. Kev, if you're listening, and and, and yeah, but I, and I think that that that's that does happen. I mean, it, it is. I can, I've lived here almost 17 years now, and that sort of does happen. The longer you live here, the longer you sort of start to think get that Japanese mindset and you do start to be more thoughtful about what you say and how you say it. Not all the time, but sometimes, especially when you're in front of a microphone. And I think that they just, that that's part of the process of being a manager here is that you do learn to play that game. Mm -hmm. Now I will say that I do think that Muskie and Ange's style does mesh a lot better with the Japanese, the overall Japanese style of play and technicals. Versus someone who's a bit more pragmatic like Graham Arnold. So I do wonder if that may have been a part of his downfall. So I, I know the timing of his managing uh, role was, was not great. It was, there's a lot of external stuff going on, but, um. Yeah. And, and Vigaltas and I, like, they, as a club, they're not in a good place these days. I will tell you that for many years. Uh, Vigalto were sort of the, you know, everyone's second favorite club. You know, you you have your team, but then like you know, nobody's cheering against Vigalto Sendai, especially after the earthquake in twenty eleven, mm-hmm. uh, which which did you know was devastating. Um, and they were a you know like they helped galvanize and unite the community in a time of need, and for them to go on that rally in twenty eleven and nearly win the title. And came really close, uh, you know, or, or I, sh- I should say, rather, they got to Asia in 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 2011, then 2012, they nearly won the title. They finished second, uh, but then basically a, a decade of, of finishes in the bottom of the table, relegated in 2021, and then at this point, it doesn't look like they're coming back anytime soon. So, like, that's the sort of club where. I think that if he had joined a bigger club with more resources, things might have turned out differently. But unfortunately, I think, you know, clubs that are outside the big cities, more of the the sort of smaller provincial clubs, as we call them, you know, there is a mentality uh, that can't always be shaken off Mm -hmm. uh, for better or for worse. Are you ready to stay fit this winter? Get off the couch with Kettlebell Kickboxing Canada. Sign up now to their mobility and movement program. 
Use the code PSP15 to get 15% off the one-time purchase of the program. Then it's yours forever. No additional subscriptions or fees. The program is available worldwide. Now, back to the show. Now, I am mindful that we've taken up quite a bit of your time, but I'm loving this conversation. And it would be remiss of me not to bring this up because Justin is Canadian and much of our audience is Canadian. Hey. And I'll argue that the the most, yeah, the finest hour of Canadian soccer actually occurred in Japan was the 2021 Olympic gold medal being won by the women's team. But unfortunately, there were no fans to enjoy it. Although I will probably take a wager and say that you were in the stands. Is that correct? You know what? It actually isn't. Um, I, uh, even for the home Olympics, uh, passes were limited uh, for media. So I actually only covered the games at Saitama Stadium uh, to the north. So I didn't see the women's. I watched the women's final on TV, but I feel like I was somewhere else. I would have to look up the schedule because I feel like that game and the men's bronze game were the same night. That may have been correct because it, it was on a Saturday, uh, Friday night, uh, Japanese time, Friday morning. Yeah, I would time. have to. So, right. So let's see. I'm, I'm looking up. So Mexico and Japan was on August 6th. And if I look up the women's tournament the gold medal game was also on august 6th so yeah we watched japan throw away its best chance at a bronze medal at its first bronze medal in in 53 years and then went back to the um you know the media center and watched canada you know start to win the title i think that i maybe watched the rest of the game on the train back but yeah and you know, disappoint. I will say disappointing to see Canada struggle at the at the recent Women's World Cup, but I, I'm really optimistic for that new professional league that's starting up. Mm-hmm. As are we, but uh, it is with some trepidation. Uh, the unlike the JFA, the Canada Soccer Association leaves a little bit to be desired. It's it's going through those growing pains that you go through when when you go from being somewhat amateur organization to being you know fully professional it's, it's coming to the professional ages it's, there's no other way to put it and saying that though the japanese women did win the women's world cup in 2015 what well 2011 2011 sorry they, they 2011 the they, then they got then they got cur- they made the final in 2015 where they got curb stomped in in canada ah yes that's right that is right so they have blazed a trail for the men what's the general feeling about them, uh, especially after the recently completed Women's World Cup, women's soccer uh, in Japan, I think it's it's at this a similar inflection point because the 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 big the big trouble the big problem is that Japan is very good at women's soccer, arguably one of the strongest nations in the world. I think you know you can say that they only reached the quarterfinals uh, this year, but if if you look at the quality of the players. Uh, and the fact that Japan does now have a professional women's league in in terms of of player development uh the grassroots system Japan can stand up there with maybe not quite the US but say you know the top european countries brazil that sort of thing 
the the problem is just that there isn't much public awareness slash recognition. Like it's just it's not a popular league right now. A lot of that has to do with marketing or lack thereof. Uh, shockingly, uh, when you launch a professional women's soccer league in the middle of the pandemic, uh, it's hard to get fans to come to the stadium. Who would have thought? But the the quality is improved, and I think that going from the the previous Nadesco League to the Wii League, uh, going from what was essentially a corporate league to a professional league, has allowed the athletes to focus on the game, and and that's been just the biggest thing. It's just you know, the players can focus on playing, can focus on training, can focus on recovery, can focus on nutrition. And they, what they don't have to focus on is balancing all of that with their day jobs. And I think the proof is, is in how well Japan played in New Zealand uh, and, and how many Japanese players have gone on to Europe. I mean, we've just in the last couple of weeks, we saw Hinata Miyazawa, who won the Golden Boot uh, at this World Cup, uh, joined Manchester United. Just the other day, yesterday, in fact, uh, Rico Ueki uh, left for West Ham United. Uh, you know, we have so many Japanese players in Italy, in Germany, and in, in England, especially. The NWSL is sort of proving to be a great, I want to say, stepping stone league because the NWSL is in and of itself one of the biggest women's soccer leagues in the world. But you have June Endo there. You have, I think, uh, Narumi Miura is still is still there. Uh, I believe she's still there. And, you know, and, and yeah, she's still with the Courage, who just won the um, NWSL, the Challenge Cup. And so things are improving in that sense. You you have that sort of the great migration that the men experienced after the 2020, or after, after the 2010 World Cup. Like, that is what's happening to the women. The problem is that there isn't an audience for the women's league right now. And Nadesco Japan just still, they don't have the cultural cachet that they did after 2011. And so the big question is, how do you get that back? And the answer is you you need to spend a lot of money on marketing and promotion and force them into the conversation. But right now the JFA doesn't have that money because it's emerging from the pandemic. So I, I think that we're going to, you know, it's going to be a bit of wait and see, and but it's going to take a, a lot of efforts uh, from the league, from the clubs, uh, from the JFA to make that happen. I see. Okay. Well, well um, be interested to see how that progresses because, as you say, they're one of the best teams in, in women's soccer. And I'll go one step further and say, if, when you combine the men's and women's teams, I'll say that Japan is top five, maybe top three in the world behind. Spain and England. I'll, I'll put Japan ahead of Germany nowadays, but that—that's. I mean, that—that's bold. I don't know. I mean, I would say that if you're looking at sort of overall development, I mean, I would top ten. I can make, make the argument for top three. I mean, we do. The men do still need to get out of the round of sixteen. I think that's sort of like if they'd made it to the quarterfinals. Yes. You know, yeah. I think they can make it out. Of the, they could make it out of the quarterfinals. Uh, they the, they have the players to do so. The question mm-hmm. the question is whether or not Mordiasu has learned his lesson uh, from that Croatia game. And and I think we've sort of seen that in the recent friendlies. I think that this this Japan is playing like the the Japan that we want to see. 
uh, they just have to keep that that energy up over the next three years. Indeed. Now, I wanted to ask you some rugby questions, but I, I think we've taken up more than enough of your time. I mean, I, my time is yours. I mean, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm not a I'm not a total rugby guy, but I can I can do my best. My, the bulk of my experience was from covering uh, the world, the 2019 World Cup, which was incredible. I tell people it was one of the coolest things I've ever covered. Absolutely, and we are in currently under the backdrop of the 2023 iteration, which is in France. 2019 was hosted in Japan and came after the 2015 edition where Japan upset rugby powerhouse South Africa and England. What is the perception of the game over there? Because I guess my observation, or many people outside of Japan observe it as it's a, a league where players from traditional rugby countries go to play as their career kind of winds down a bit of a sunset league. The national team is developing, but it maybe has more of a sevens um, foundation. What What is it, the rugby landscape in Japan right now? So uh, it's funny that as far as the sev- as sevens are concerned, I think that the women's side, I think the sevens are pretty strong and, and the 15s are sort of not quite there. Um, I believe I've heard people smarter than me in terms of rugby suggest that Japan should focus on its women's sevens development the, for the men, uh, I think it, it's the, the the challenge is that you know yes, Japan isn't a traditional rugby nation, quote unquote, and yes, a lot of the players in the national team have been naturalized, which raises a lot of questions as to well, what does it mean to play for a national team, especially in a country that is ninety eight percent Japanese, you know, and, and that's which is sort of in in contrast with the national soccer team uh the, or I should say the men's team where you have a lot of mixed race players who have you know who have come up the ranks and are representing Japan and so I like the contrast there I know that's not quite what you're asking me I do do just want to point that out mm. rugby I mean it is still sort of very I think because as a sport it is about the team it is culturally you know a very unifying sport and i think that it it, in that way it is a good match for japanese culture which does value the team the organization over the individual it it is also a sport that does value good sportsmanship and camaraderie as they say rugby is a barbaric sport played by gentlemen and soccer is a gentleman sport played by, by barbarians and in that sense i think japan were amazing hosts of the World Cup four years ago. Uh, I had a blast. It was such a, an amazing learning experience. Uh, the atmospheres were fantastic. The fans were so kind and generous and informative. Uh, and I was so lucky to watch Japan play all of its games uh, and, and cover those pitch side. And some of the loudest games I've ever been to of, of any sport. You know, this year is, is a bit tougher. I think that Japan's development... All of the momentum that we expected Japan to take out of that Rugby World Cup was blunted by the pandemic. And and so we, we are sort of losing that. And no matter how Japan does in this World Cup, it is going to be a question of what if. I think that you do have to look at including Japan in the rugby championship, if we're being honest. Like, as a as a national team, the, the Brave Blossoms are just too good to not be included in a hemispheric competition. Uh, I think that's the next big step. And something's got to get, you know, Sanzar has got to figure something out uh, because it's, and, and the 
the the Japan Rugby Football Union ha- has to figure it out too because you know you, you can only develop a team so far with these little invitationals and you know having the All Blacks over once every couple of years for friendlies and that sort of thing. Like they need to play competitive rugby. There we go. And you only need to look at the Argentine, the improvement of Argentina over the last, I think, 10, 10 years, however long they've been in the expanded rugby championship, that, you know, they, they regularly beat Australia now, which may be a, com- a commentary on <laughs> where Australian rugby is at, but Argentina are to be taken seriously now when it's uh, an international tournament. And Japan can get there. I, I always hear the excuse about travel, but I feel like they can find a way. That they found a way to put the Sunwolves into Super Rugby back in the day. They they can make it happen, and yeah, it just needs to happen, like you say. It, it's tough because I think the, the the travel is really one of the biggest things. I, mean, I think that the league, the league needs to do more to promote itself overseas and try to build an audience. And that you know, Rome wasn't built in a day, but my understanding is they don't have an international you know broadcasting or streaming deal, and that's you know really a wasted opportunity you see how the j league has really developed its international audience these last five years uh the b league uh japan's professional basketball league is is making great strides in uh, southeast asia especially uh and and other region and and other regions in asia and and it's it's getting there and you, you see the results of the b league and its development on on Japan's national team, which just qualified for the Olympics, uh, straight up, I think for the first time in many many years, I think since Montreal. Wow! Like it's been a long time. Like it's been a long time since Japan, since the men's team qualified for the Olympics, like as non-hosts. And you know, you you see, just now you have a team full of professional players, a team full of NBA player, you know, regulars. Uh, you have Japanese players coming up through NCAA Division One, uh, who are making a huge impact, and that's only going to continue. Mm-hmm. Shout out to Rui Hachimura, by the way. Now, absolutely, Canada basketball actually celebrated a similar milestone. The men's team qualified for the Olympics for the first time since Steve Nash's Reds in two thousand. Did you catch any of the recent FIBA Men's World Cup that was partially hosted? No, by you know what I. I I was stateside the whole time, um, so I missed the the pool stages, and which was when Okinawa was hosting. And I sort of I kept an eye on the results, but like by the time I got back, I was fighting really hard with jet lag, so I missed you know a lot of the latter stuff. But I had to catch highlights, and I kept up with uh, Japan's results, and it was um, you know just they did really well. I think it would it was disappointing that Hachimura didn't you know sat this one out, but. Mm. Uh, the fact that you know, not not that he's the only NBA player to have, have sat this World Cup out, uh, but the fact that uh, Watan- Utah Watanabe, for, former former Toronto Raptor Utah Watanabe, mm-hmm. stepped up and you know carried that team. Uh, you have like Kese Tomiaga. You have you know all, all these players who are ready and willing to to create this thing and to to build this team. I, I think that. Japanese basketball does have a bright future, you know. Are are they going to be able to stand toe to toe with the US? You know, with Team USA, probably not, but it wasn't uh Team U- Team USA wasn't even on the podium at this World Cup. So like anything can happen uh when it comes to international basketball and I think that 
the B League is is on a strong path, and I think Japanese basketball as a whole uh, has emerged from its years of mis- or, yeah, mismanagement and developed something really strong. Amazing. I look forward to seeing a, an Asian Champions League of basketball in the future where the B League... It, it's the- happening. Um, There is a the East Asia Super League. It's actually starting. They did like a, a shortened competition last year, and it is starting its first proper Champions League style competition this year. I believe clubs from Japan, Hong Kong, Philippines, I think South Korea, and maybe I think China are sending a team or two. And it's like proper home and away and all that. So nice. like that that's one to watch out for. I think it's going to start in November or so. Cool. Oh, that's awesome. I'm I'm so glad to hear that because um yeah I feel like uh, a stronghold like the Philippines, I feel like East Asia there's a lot of talent that's we just haven't seen yet in terms of basketball. So I look forward to seeing that uh, manifest and evolve for the next few years. Now, Dan, we know you write for the Japan Times. Where can we find your stories and also your social media? All of my stories are on uh, the the Japan Times website, uh, japantimes.co.jp. Look for the sports section, which I think is maybe easier or more difficult than it used to be because we actually just had a, a bit of a design change. And so, you know, I don't quite know where the menus are these days, but I'm somewhere in there. But it's probably if, if you're looking for, you know, I will admit just because I've been on vacation, I haven't written too much lately. And so I'm sort of working on my next batch of, of things and I'm getting ready to cover Formula One next week. So that's going to be my big thing. And right now, if you want my hot takes and uh, the cold takes and everything in between, the easiest ways to do that are on Twitter at Aishiteru Tokyo, A-I-S-H-I-T-E-R-U-T-O-K-Y-O. And if you search for that on Mastodon, which I don't really use, and on Blue Sky, which I'm sort of figuring out how I want to use, you'll find me there. Uh, but right now, Twitter is, and I'm, I'm not going to call it by its weird name, I refuse. <laughs> it's the bird app. It, it's the bird app till I die. Yeah. But yeah, that that's sort of where I post and, and where I engage most with, uh, I say my audience, and that sounds super pretentious, but like, you know, I just, I love coming on to things like this and, and answering questions and, and informing people because that, that's sort of my job. That's uh, what I like to do. So definitely, if you have any questions about the league or whatever, Japanese sports in general, then hit me up. Oh, don't you worry. You'll be back. We'll, we'll have more questions for you. We, we, we're mindful of... Damn right. We're mindful that uh, we've taken over the time, but it was a fantastic conversation. Just to close, give us a bold prediction. It could be Anything, maybe Japanese sports could be. We didn't even get to Naomi Osaka, for example. But give us a bold prediction for the rest of 2023. Bold prediction for the rest of 2023. Hmm. Gosh, I don't even know where to take. I'm, uh, do you, Do you have a sport in mind, or should I just like pick something out of the? Yeah, it could be Japanese soccer. You could whatever you want, whatever you like. Maybe. Um. 2023. Uh, okay, so my cheating 2023 would be that I think I think Japan can will win its fifth Asian Cup 
in and it's it is the 2023 Asian Cup, but it's actually taking place uh, in t- January 2024 because you know we're still on that. But the, you know they moved it to Qatar, and I, I think that if Japan continue, if if the Samurai Blue continue to play as they have in these first few friendlies, especially again as they did against Germany and, and Turkey uh, this last week, I think they'll take it home. And and so that that's sort of my obvious prediction. If I want something, let's see, a little off out of what we've discussed, I think that as far as baseball goes, and which is something I don't think we've discussed oh, yes. once, uh, I think that I think the Tigers are doing it. I think it's their year. Oh wait wait wait, the Hanshin Tigers, right? Not the Detroit. The Tigers. Hanshin Tigers, <laughs> correct. It's never the it's never the 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 Detroit Tigers year. <laughs> So as we record this, the Tigers are leading the, the, the Central League by a significant margin. I think the magic number to clinch the Central League is either, it might be a two, it was a three yesterday before they played. So it's either a two or three, and it's going to be their first Central League title since uh, 2005. Long wait. Like, it's been so long that I think all of the... Like, I mean, all the municipalities that cover their main fan bases in Osaka, as well as sort of the area of Kobe around Koshian Stadium, like, they've been warning people, like, don't overdo it in celebrations, like, be careful in crowds, you know, don't injure yourself, don't, like, don't ransack stores, don't, like, don't cause trouble for local businesses, don't jump into the, uh, the canals in Dotonbori in Osaka, don't, throw the KFC statues into the canals. We all know what happened last time. But yeah, I mean, obviously if they win the the Central League, they still have to win the Japan series, uh, which I think the last time they did that was, gosh, not even 2005 because they were runner-up. It was 1985. So you're talking of a 48-year wait. Wait, no, not 48 years, 30, 38 years, because I, I was born in 1985. But So yeah, I, I think it's the year. I think they've got the vibes. I think they can do it. So that that's my hot take prediction. Okay, well, as we record this... I mean, this, I can... <laughs> <laughs> I, I should... I mean, out. I don't know when it, when this podcast is going to come out, but we'll see. Well, I just... You gave us the, the Eastern Tigers update. I'll, I'll give you the, the update on this side of the... Uh, in the Western Hemisphere. The, the Detroit Tigers are getting... Worked by the Cincinnati Reds, which surprise, surprise is not a surprise given the way their season's going. Miguel Cabrera is going to have a a sad end to his career. Nevertheless, the face of baseball on this side of the world is Japanese, and it is Shohei Otani. Where does he end up? Give us a a hot take on that. I I mean, I I know. I think that right now it has to be the Dodgers because they're probably the only team that can really afford to pay the staggering amounts of money that he deserves. I mean, it seems, I mean, this this, inju- this latest injury he suffered, I mean, he won't be able to pitch next season because he'll have Tommy John surgery and whatever. And let's, as a sidebar, isn't it amazing that you can have Tommy John surgery and still, like, be a designated hitter? Mm. Like, isn't that wild? Mm-hmm. You know, I do my hamstring in and I can't move for three weeks. And it's like... I mean, professional athletes, amazing. Anyway, I think, yeah, I think he stays West Coast. I, I would love to see him, you know, my, my Philadelphia Phillies are never going to sign a, a Japanese player of that caliber. But 
I think the Dodgers, I think, I don't see the Yankees going for him. I certainly hope not. Mm. It seems like they're going to, the Yankees are preparing to spend a lot of money on um, Yoshinobu Yamamoto, the pitcher, ah, uh, who who is doing amazingly for the Buffaloes this season. So, yeah, I I think that it, it, it's either the Dodgers or the Angels figure out something. But quite frankly, if you're Otani, like, you know, he shouldn't be like Suzuki. Mm. Like... A player that good has no right staying, like, you know, shouldn't stick with a team that bad. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, and it's not even L.A., it's Anaheim. There, I said it. I right. said it. You're not wrong. No lies detected. Right? I mean, Mike Trout, he seems to be like a designated I.L. player nowadays, so he's probably looking to get out. Uh, so. Anyway, we'll, we'll watch this space. We shall watch this space. Mate, it's been a great chat. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. For even more of your favorite sports content, be sure to visit the website www.prosportspodcasters.com. On our website, you will find our sports blog, full podcast library, access to our YouTube channel, and deals from our affiliate partners. You can also sign up to become a PSP Insider and get exclusive access to our insider tips, sponsor giveaways, and insider newsletter. So don't miss out on the full Pro Sports Podcast's experience, where no sport is left behind.